An airborne Boeing 747 is headed to London without any warning. Passengers mysteriously disappear from their seats. Terror and chaos slowly spread not only through the plane, but also worldwide as unusual events continue to unfold. For those who have been left behind, the apocalypse has just begun. The future has come to pass. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the I Survived the Rapture podcast. This is a podcast where we dive into the Left Behind series, so you don't have to. I'm your lapsed evangelical Shane Bazell, along with... Uh, your ecumenical fanboy, Gavin Russell. Great to be here. So how you doing, bud? Pretty good, pretty good. I just uh, spent uh, from about 9 a.m. to now reading 158 pages of the Left Behind series. So uh, I'm feeling pretty good. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So how how into the uh, how into the tribulation are you right now? Well, uh, I'm I'm do I'm I'm liking it better than I thought I would. Um, like I said in the intro, I've uh, uh, I, I I didn't get into the books as a kid, but as I'm starting to get into them, I can see why they took off the way that they did. Yeah, it's weirdly compelling, huh? Like, yeah, 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 definitely. Like it, you, it, it like I, um, I, the notions that I kind of had the the series to be is wildly different than like uh, what I'm uh, going through now. Yeah, totally. And you know, it ends up being kind of a page turner. So I'm I'm really excited to dive into this. So we're about to dive into book number one, the book that launched 80 million book sales, comic books, feature length movies, a video game countless warning in case of rapture this car will be unmanned bumper stickers this is left behind so you ready to do this right and uh, i think we'll just start with the iconic first line that really kind of sets the tone for uh the this first bit um uh, rayford Steele's mind was on a woman he had never touched what an opener <laughs> Hold on, I gotta, hold on, I need to sit that opener uh, up and take the latches off so we can start to unpack that. Um, and before we really get in here, guys, we we actually do kind of love this series, even if we don't align with everything that it stands for, spiritually, politically, um, socially, and or at all. We do kind of have a fondness for all this. So, you know, we're not trying to 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 come at these authors or bash them too much we're here to appreciate not to make fun or criticize uh but boy that is an opener <laughs> what's the first thing you notice about that line rayford Steele's mind was on a woman he had never touched well it uh it kind of is setting up like uh rayford for the most part he's uh he's kind of like you know been kind of a, a very faithful man you know he's uh but he's starting to teeter a little bit He's starting to want to like give way into temptation, uh, so to speak. You know, it's really funny. So you're you're looking, you know, deeper into the prose. Uh, my first thing I noticed is the name Rayford Steele. <laughs> oh right, 
Laura, that'll be a, a, a reoccurring thing as the uh, book goes on of the just out there names that Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins throw at us. The fantastic best names in the history of fiction. I don't know what it is about certain book series and the last name Steel, but it seems to be a favorite um, among certain types of authors. Right? It does kind of seem to be your, like, tough guy um, uh, last name that just you cut and paste uh, in anything uh, kind of meant for your younger crowd. Yeah. So we got, we got our boy Rayford Steele, who is a pilot for Pancontinental Airlines. He is the best of the best. Uh, he's all-American boy, family man, um, two kids, wildly successful, and he is currently contemplating infidelity. And he, he's being tempted by a woman named Hattie Durham, his senior flight attendant that he's flown with many a times. Yeah, now Hattie is short for Harriet. I think she's supposed to be Harriet Durham, and they call her Hattie. I think she's in her, like, like late 20s. Um, yeah, yeah, it, I think like 26, 27, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Mm, and I think we've got Rayford somewhere in his 40s. So the reason why we're paying such attention to this very opening of the book is because our buddy Tim LaHaye, part of the uh, the two-headed dragon that is the writers of the Left Behind series, actually came up with this idea for the entire Left Behind story because he witnessed what he described as, I think he said, inappropriate moment of intimacy or physical closeness between a pilot and a flight attendant um, while he was sitting in first class waiting for his flight to take off uh, at an airport. And his very next thought was, what if the rapture happened right after this? Oh my God, that's... Yeah. <laughs> As we delve into the mindscape of the late Tim LaHaye, um, we are going to learn a lot about how this guy sees the world. And um, as we said in the intro, this really is kind of a, a, a two-hand operation. You've got Jerry B. Jenkins, who is the novelist. He's steering the ship and writing the prose and, you know, plotting out the action. Tim LaHaye is providing the outline. He is the prophecy, quote, expert. Um, that's what he spent his career doing, was uh, doing his own interpretation of what he considered biblical prophecy, um, especially as it related to the end times, which for um, a lot of my secular folks is what uh, is a blanket term that we, that you know, in the evangelical community used to discuss the rapture, uh, the seven-year tribulation, and uh, the millennial reign of Christ, which is all going to come into play here. Um, but Jenkins is really the guy writing this here. He's coming up with the dialogue. He's coming up with the events. He's taking notes that LaHaye gives him, and he's sort of plotting things out. So this beginning look into Rayford, who is our point of view character, sharing it about 50-50 with someone we're about to meet, is really sort of to set him up as our main protagonist. And uh, he's not a real great guy. Yeah, he uh, he goes through a lot of rough moments in uh, throughout this, uh, this bit. Yeah, he really does. And um, the other thing that I noticed is that from pretty much the word go, we're immediately into faith and religion talk. While he's contemplating his infidelity, he jumps over into thinking about his wife, Irene, um, and how much he enjoyed their marriage way more when she wasn't as into church stuff. Yeah, it really like hammers in like, um, uh, if only Irene hadn't gone off on this new kick. Can you imagine, Rafi? She exulted, 
Jesus is coming back to get us before we die. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is going to be something that comes up probably again and again, especially during this first book, is that Jenkins and LaHaye are very quick to separate sort of the sheep from the goats when it comes to Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a pretty common evangelical thing. When I was growing up, because uh, I grew up Assemblies of God, there is, and which is about as evangelical as you can get, um, you know, right up there with Baptist. Yeah, which was uh, the, the flock that I had to be around. Right, right. So we're, we're coming at this from a background of Assemblies of God and then Baptist. I think the difference between you and me is our, our guys spoke in tongues. So, <laughs> so when we're, we're coming at it from that evangelical perspective, there is definitely an exclusivity that exists there of certain types of Christians are real Christians and certain types aren't. And you're going to see that as we go through. And there's sort of a, and I wouldn't call it an arbitrary scale um, because there is a lot of doctrinal stuff and core beliefs that sort of drive um, how evangelicals think in regards to who is truly saved and who is not. Um, but you're going to see sort of a blanket evangelical uh, worldview pasted over this as to what kind of church is okay and what kind of church is not. Um, and spoilers, uh, if you're Catholic, probably not. <laughs> oh, no. I, I can't wait till we get to the parts about the Catholic oh, church. That's yeah. just a gold mine. Yep, yep. Yep. I think that's, I think that's going to get us into episode two before we do that. But, um, so we move on from, from Rayford contemplating Hattie, basically running through these fantasy scenarios in his mind about, uh, touching her hand or brushing past her. You know, this guy is trying to set up, what do I have to do to initiate an affair? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, but he starts feeling bad about it. Until and when, as soon as he remembers, uh, I think what you said was one of your favorite lines from the first chapter. Yeah, how he felt guilty about a, a private necking session at a company Christmas party. <laughs> so, <laughs> Which uh, I had to look up what that meant because I guess it the the last time necking session was used was before I was born. Yeah, I think it was so. in an episode of Happy Days. Was the last time someone unironically <laughs> used the word necking, um, which I think is where we're gonna see a pattern also begin with this book of really weirdly antiquated language at the strangest times. I've got my own personal theories about it, but I think it has a lot to do with the target audience. Um, Your typical evangelical that's going to a Christian bookstore and buying the stuff, they take a lot of pride on not being what they'd consider worldly. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of that actually manifested, at least when I was growing up, on not speaking in what would be considered contemporary vernacular. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that definitely was a thing that I noticed too growing up. Yeah, and and that also goes in with the weird lack of swearing. Um, When we get to the events that are going to happen, these people would be swearing um, a lot because the world is literally coming to an end, but no one utters a single curse word which you would expect but at the same time i find it really jarring um i wrote something down here in my notes and and this is a little bit bashing but with the amount of detail in which the fantasies are described i'm like jenkins has definitely had these kind of fantasies about a co-worker right and it it, it kind of like uh, something i put in my notes too it always gets like right to the edge right before it gets explicit he 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 like stays like right at that border and like just dances around that because there's some moments where it's like 
that it that it, it kind it, of goes right up to the edge of being kind of um real spicy without without going into anything explicit mm-hmm. yeah yeah which i think is kind of this weird version of titillation that's still safe for the audience yeah yeah another thing that i noticed about ray he's a perfectly reasonable dude um you know he's yeah. you know he's obviously flawed but he's he goes into thinking about his doubts um as far as how irene is approaching her faith um and he's got perfectly reasonable doubts um about you know how god relates to people he kind of believes in god but you know he's just he's not all they're they're sold you know he's a decent guy and his doubts are perfectly reasonable but as we're going to find out that's not good enough for god right god's like nah sorry man so once we've passed over our introduction of um rayford tough man steel we are introduced to yet another of our protagonists um kind of our our 50 50 here who is Cameron Williams, aka Buck, because he likes to book the tradition. Buck, cool name Williams, played uh, interestingly enough by Kirk Cameron, um, a weird evangelical Hollywood outlier uh, from Growing Pains in the movie version of Left Behind. He was played by Kirk Cameron. So, yeah, we got Buck, cool name Williams, who is the best writer, best journalist, best writer boy. And uh, he is flying back from London on the same flight um, in which Ray is the pilot. And um, what do we learn about Buck? You hit it kind of on the head at first that they have to explain his nickname, which I think is just precious. Yeah, yeah, because he was always bucking tradition and authority, which once you st- once we start getting uh, later in the book with his conversation with his family, it's a little bit more, it explains that a bit more. But um, uh... yeah, and he's a generally likable guy um yeah yeah like he's uh probably like my favorite character in the, the book honestly yeah buck is um as much as ray is set up as the protagonist um in the movies they really do shift toward it being buck's story um i think the novels really kind of end up with ray being the most important and um that's that's with complete restraint on spoilers um that you know ray really kind of becomes the the big POV um, all the way through once you get, especially once you get to the latter half. Um, But with Buck, we are allowed um, one of the more interesting evangelical quirks of this series, um, which is we get introduced to a character named Chaim Rosenzweig, um, the brilliant Israeli scientist. And we are brought into the strange fascination with the nation of Israel that is a hallmark of a lot of evangelical political belief and spiritual belief. So what, what, how did this strike you when it, when it got into this um, chapter? And I'm gonna let you talk about it. Well, it, um, Heinz is like this absolute genius that essentially has, he, um, uh, Rosenweig has figured it out, so to speak. Like, He's come up with this fertilizer that is just just turns essentially any nation into like this powerhouse of agriculture, and he's and he, it, it allowed Israel to become just like the envy of the world. You know, there's there's even says virtually zero unemployment. So like I don't know, this guy just seems to be, be like you know just paragon of the world yeah and everybody wants to to get access to this guy he creates this magic fertilizer that makes desert sand uh grow crops which you know i'm fine with a contrivance but this is just the first contrivance in a train of literary contrivances and 
we're going to see that all throughout the series. And I'm, I know I'm saying this over and over again, but this, since this is a foundational chapter, there is this kind of set of rules that the Left Behind books have to follow which is that the plot isn't driven by the author. The plot is driven by Tim LaHaye saying the following events need to happen and they need to happen this way. So it's kind of this backwards way of writing a book. Tim LaHaye is essentially the one writing the plot outline. And then Jenkins, the one who's creating the characters and the one who is really providing and putting the meat on the bones of the story is sort of required to like go back and sort of fill in and make things fit. Um, Yeah. And things really have to kind of fit when we get into uh, what happens next. So Buck is thinking back on that interview he had with Heim Rosenzweig. During that interview, um, something bonkers happens. Um, up till now, the book's just been, you know, kind of bog standard uh, adult fiction, you know, um, or, you know, airport fiction, to no pun intended. But as soon as we meet Rosenzweig, uh, things immediately start to get weird. <laughs> Oh yeah, uh, you talking about how uh, how it starts going into the, the this weird conflict with Russia? Yep, that's the one. So so take us take us through that. It, it starts going into how if uh, Rosenweig got captured, then if this the secret to the magic fertilizer got out, any nation could just um, go from uh, uh, like just skyrocket their industrialization and prosperity and then we get into the quote was this the key to resurrecting that massive nation following the shattering of the union of uh, soviet socialist republics and not only that russia has recently um uh, switched from rubles to marks um uh, following this weird currency conglomeration initiative yeah so they dump a lot of world building on you here so yeah you talked about the russians wanting the formula um, which is like an entire Tom Clancy novel in one sentence. And then you have the uh, the currency exchange as well, which I'm going to go ahead and put it now here as well, since we mentioned it in the intro. Um, Tim LaHaye is a conspiracy theorist. Oh, yeah. He is 100% or was, because he's no longer with us, but he was a like patent version of the 1990s conspiracy theorist. Um, the UN is evil. Um, there's one world government coming. They're going to try to take away national sovereignty from every nation and put it under the UN. The black helicopter conspiracy, um, the Illuminati and the Bilderbergs are behind everything. The stuff that Alex Jones used to talk about was the stuff that Tim LaHaye was 100% into. And he believed that all of those conspiracies, this is where he took it a step further, were paving the way for the global government under an antichrist. But that's all I'm going to say about that for right now. Because <laughs> we'll get there. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I think this would be an excellent part to because seg- uh, it segues fast into the Russian Pearl Harbor. Oh, thank God you brought that phrase up. I had that in my notes too. Russian Pearl Harbor. And I just wrote the word oof. next to it because that is a phrase and i i honestly have to say the amount of times that i have written oof yikes or what 
next to direct quotes from this book in my notes um, is higher than I would like it to be. Right. And uh, uh, I'm not sure if it's later that it gets into the the full description of uh, what happened. Oh, it does. No, it, it gets okay. in it right there. It starts to talk about um, how they send every single plane in their entire um, fleet and how they send all of their missiles, all of their planes. Um, they are trying to annihilate Israel, which makes absolutely zero sense. Right, because I thought the the goal would be kind of like, in this hypothetical scenario, get in there and get the formula, which would be pretty hard if, like, everything's destroyed. Right, and then, um, so yeah, they send every single plane... And then what happens next? Well, luckily, it seems that uh, the Russians uh, kind of uh, blew things because all of the planes just mystically fall out of the sky. Right. And and so, yeah, every plane blows up in the sky. Um, all the nukes are detonated in the atmosphere or do not go off. Um, and no one dies. No one dies. Not a single Israeli dies. That every single Russian dies. And we find out later it was a. It was not just Russia, but an alliance of other countries, including Ethiopia. Is Russia, some other other Middle Eastern countries, and then Ethiopia are all trying to attack Israel with on a mission of total annihilation. And they keep. And this is a small thing. And I know it's not intentional. And I know that what that the word has other meanings, but I could not help but cringe at the fact that he consistently keeps referring to the fire in the sky as a holocaust. Oh, yeah, yeah. I have that highlighted in my notes, too. Like, come on, man. Right, like, yeah. There's, there's so many other descriptors that he could have used. Like... It, dude, you can say that if it was literally any other country but Israel, but pick another word, dude. Like, come on. Right. I, I know I want to pivot real quick here is that you actually have a copy of the updated version because they keep releasing patches. Yeah, yeah, they keep patching because uh, I uh, downloaded a PDF last night just to have something uh, that I can read across my devices. And I noticed when they're talking about the change from rubles to marks, it's changed from rubles to euros. So there is an effort of uh, left behind of the left behind fandom to update the books to be out. Uh, more modern as thing as uh, time progresses and I, dude i think that's fascinating i think it is too like i was saying earlier today um uh just before we got started i want to know how this go like in 2060 what is the left behind series gonna look like yeah i want the patch notes i want the i want the release notes for yeah we uh we nerfed buck williams's hacker skills uh because his hacker skill was breaking the game Oh, God. We'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. I know. All right, so next week we're back to Rayford for a little bit. And Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, we get, you know, because all of Rayford's uh, sections start with, like, either something really depressing or a little bit off. And this one starts with Captain Rayford Steele felt an irresistible urge to see Hattie Durham right then. Oh, God. It's like he he needed to see her right now. Right, and this starts, but this uh, starts to get into uh, 
uh, like people start disappearing. Like the rapture itself has occurred. Um, Hattie comes in, people are missing. Um, uh, there, and then it gets into the iconic. It's just their clothes. Their cl- only their clothes are left, which is a reoccurring thing. They'll keep referencing in the book and like really um, uh, put a, um, a magnifying glass to. And like that's a really strong image. Like I actually really appreciate the clothes thing, and I have to talk a little bit about my own background like as a kid when these books came out they sort of for a lot of people in the evangelical community who had not thought about the mechanics of the rapture or the specifics of the rapture when this combined with the approach of the year 2000 sort of sparked an end times fever um for a few years and this book because none of this is in the bible you know, none of the mechanics of the rapture canon. There's even argument over whether there's pre-tribulation versus post-tribulation rapture. And like, we're not going to get into the the details of that here, but there's a lot of discussion about how the rapture would occur and what it would look like. But the sudden vanishing of all organic material, leaving all inorganic material behind in an instant all across the world is almost a complete invention of just this book pseudo deutero canon is something that i've kind of attributed to this and like works kind of like how um dante's inferno um uh, shaped like people's imagery of hell um uh, and that kind because like i always heard um uh, the people's clothes um uh, being left behind things without even reading the book and knowing it was from these uh, books is what kind of started it that was just a kind of thing in the zeitgeist that i would hear growing up yeah, and I I like that term pseudo deutero canon. We can abbreviate it to pseudo deutero because um, it sounds like a Pokemon. Mm-hmm. It's my favorite thing about it is it's a pseudo deutero canon. Um, <laughs> but it's uh, it's it does sound like a Pokemon. But when so when we're looking at this, you're absolutely right that like there's someone who wasn't a biblical author, someone who wasn't part of the original text, writes this thing that for most Christians who were going to be real here have not read the Bible cover to cover, don't know it by heart, just sort of assume that people who spend more time in the Bible than them have read this and know it's there Mm -hmm. and therefore just accept it to be biblical truth. And that's what um, I made the joke at the beginning of the episode, the warning in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned um, bumper stickers. And for as cringeworthy and douchey as those bumper stickers were, that everyone immediately knew what you were talking about for a period of time there. And they uh, they even get into uh, the whole like uh, car crash uh, thing, like a lot in this, like a lot of people didn't die because um, uh, initially when people were taken into heaven, um, people died because, Oh, suddenly just like half the cars on the road are just careening out of control. Planes are falling out of the sky. Yeah, I got a I got a thing or two to say about that when we start getting to more car crash stuff because uh, that that makes God look like a huge head. Right. Um, I'm I'm sorry. The God of these books is an asshole, <laughs> and, and I'm saying it right now. So this is the flashpoint. This is the moment, kind of as we're seeing where we go from here. This is the flashpoint. This is the moment we've had our first instance of prophecy fulfilled, which is going to be 
all throughout the series. That's kind of the the bread and butter of this series is showing you fictional events that are fulfilling what Tim LaHaye sees as biblical prophecy. We saw Ezekiel 38 and 39, the invasion of Gog and Magog in the form of the Russian invasion um, or the Russian annihilation force that came at Israel. And that's even pre-rapture. And now we have had the moment of the thief in the night, the last trumpet, the rising of the dead in Christ and all that has happened in an instant. And this has set the permanent, I think, evangelical canon for what the rapture will look like. So now we have our characters slowly starting to realize that something is wrong. Right. And uh, it gets into uh, like, this will be a good way to segue into chapter two. Uh, People are going and looking for uh, loved ones um, uh, when we're in kind of uh, Buck's vignette. Uh, Everyone's kind of starting to freak out um, uh, a lot, especially in this first um, uh, section when uh, ever, no one's really sure what's going on. There's just mass hysteria for a little bit. Uh, yeah, I, I entitled the heading of this chapter, People Disappear and Buck Does a Computer Hack. Right? Yep, so we go from Ray contemplates infidelity to Buck does a computer hack. You have the slow, like you said, everybody's starting to realize what's going on. People start questioning it, and we're going to notice throughout the book, and it starts to get kind of repetitive of people theory crafting about what's happening and why. Yeah, uh, the the first kind of theory craft is uh, old, um, old Buck is like, the only thing I can compare it to is the old Star Trek shows where people get dematerialized and rematerialized, beamed all over the place. Man, and I wrote that line down too, in addition to being one of the several very awkward lines, because um, there's a lot of ri- lines in this book that are super awkwardly written. Um, right. The dialogue was not Jenkins' strong suit. I read this on, I, I consumed this version on audiobook and hearing that poor narrator have to say, dematerialized and rematerialized. Uh, I don't envy that guy. Right. And uh, the uh, the kind of the, the voice I'm doing right here, it's not too far off from uh, from how the narrator that uh, in these audiobooks sounds. Oh, no, it's really not. He's he, he's a good guy. I, I can't remember the uh, the narrator's name. He's a perfectly serviceable uh, professional voice talent, but for it's not his fault that his particular voice, when he is reading Jenkins' dialogue, comes off like a 1940s or 1930s news radio announcer because so much of the dialogue that Jenkins writes sounds like it was written in the 1930s. Right? It's like, yeah, it's like this weird, like, we're in this weird noir film about the rapture. Uh, And especially with uh, some of the lingo, it was so antiquated uh, for the 90s. Uh, We'll get into... I'll just go ahead and throw this line out uh, before we get to it. But what do you weigh, doll? Uh, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> what do you weigh, doll? One fifteen. <laughs> oh, I can handle the weight. Oh God, it, it, I'm half expecting someone to call um, every female character doll, toots, sweetheart, um, <laughs> just <laughs> anything. Like, it is, it, and that's a really good point. Um, that to segue into of the amount of casual misogyny because arguably the first person to notice the disappearances is Hattie and the first reaction of the men on the flight is to think she's crazy. Yeah, yeah. 
look at this crazy dame that she, you know, this, and and Hattie, throughout the series, whenever she appears, there is a part of the left behind canon is what I call Hattie bashing. This poor girl who, you know, is just a professional woman doing her job is repeatedly demeaned, talked down to, assumed to be lying or crazy or morally lacking somehow just because, and, and it, oh, she doesn't do anything wrong. All that she really is is an attractive woman in a professional, you know, environment. And she's just assumed to be ditzy, um, unqualified, um, out of control, stupid, um, just all of these horrible things. So Hattie is the target for all of this casual misogyny throughout the story. Oh, yeah. Um, and I'm not going to spoil where Hattie's eventual fate takes her, but I'm just going to say it gets worse. Oh yeah, I I I I haven't even gotten there in the book, and I kind of have some uh, uh, some ideas, but I'm ex- oh I'm not I'm not prepared. But personally, I I love Hattie. I think she's great. Um, oh yeah, and I I want nothing but for the best for her. But I've also read the books, so I know I don't get it. Right. I uh, I really like Hattie too because she's uh, even though like she's uh, like she's not handling the situation well, she's handling it better than others. Like you know she she helps calm down a plane full of people who are freaking out. You know even if she's not like put to, like all together. Oh poor Harold's wife, my Harold. Oh no. I think he's gone off naked. Um, th- this is it. That actually made it into the movie, the Kirk Cameron movie too. There's an old lady that. Um, is holding up her husband's clothes, asking, she's sitting next to Buck, asking uh, him to find her husband. They begin to go into this weird sort of like implying that the man might have dementia and has walked off without his clothes. And it gets really kind of awkward and which may have been the point. I don't know, but that having this woman Mm -hmm. sort of say without saying, I think my husband is having an episode and has undressed himself and walked off. Um, in the middle of this flight is really weird. But, but at the same time, this is that dichotomy of left behind where you've got people dealing with an extraordinary situation in a way that is just at believable. It doesn't go, it's not fully grounded because we're dealing with a very faith-based worldview. So it's not grounded in complete realism, but at the same time, you can see Jenkins trying to make an effort to okay, what would people actually think if this happens? And I think that that deserves a that deserves a thumbs up. Like it's yeah, it definitely does. Like some of the uh, even though some of them are weird conspiracy theories, we would like that that would be a, like a thing right out of the gate if this were to happen. Like Pete, there would just be all these weird tangents like that people would um kind of make their own of what happened, and he kind of does explores that really well. Um, oh, real quick, uh, something that we haven't mentioned. You know, like the guy on the plane that just doesn't care and doesn't know what's going on. Uh, yeah. like, Why is everyone freaking out? I'm going to go back to sleep. The drinking businessman who is Buck's uh, seatmate. Yeah, who who doesn't want to be bothered and like, just, unless we're crashing, don't wake me up. <laughs> yeah, and then like, and then like a few pages later, um, uh, he's like, sir, we've lost every child and baby on this plane. I think that's the same guy oh wait no no never mind that's that's a different guy yeah but that that guy just is like what happened are there riots (laughs) yeah Uh, it's man it's funny 
Like it, yeah, it that, and so, that guy who is never seen or heard from again. I'm just going to say that is the, that character walks out of the story, never seen again. That was something I thought was really humorous is just uh, that guy. Another weird line at the end of the chapter that like, I don't know why I thought it was weird, but there was no thanking them for choosing pancontinental. No, we hope you'll make us your choice next time you need air service. <laughs> That's really, and which is really funny. It, it's kind of that, you can see a little bit into um, the writers um, and sort of their headspace, Tim LaHaye and Jenkins. And I think, and I, there was something that uh, I can't remember who said it, but that every political pundit or religious figure or talking head should eventually write a novel. And we see this as kind of Tim LaHaye's novel because you can truly see how they see the world. And, but I think this is a Jenkins insert. I think Jenkins has been on several flights Um and has, you know, kind of an idea like of, you know, what everything that happens on flights, like the guy seems very comfortable writing about air stuff, mm-hmm. um, which is weird also because this was written pre 9-11. Ah, uh, yeah. So there is a little bit more of a lax. Um, now, the series did go on past 2001. I don't recall it changing the narrative very much um, because it didn't really have a need to, but at least with this first book being so centered around air travel, that is such a different, like if something happened on this, there would immediately be like air marshals taking charge and like there might be Homeland Security people they had to check in with um, and stuff like that, which just was not the case when this book came out. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Oh yeah, more Hattie bashing. Um, uh, well, do me a favor and consider me a part of your crew too. Just because I can't fly the thing doesn't uh, mean I feel like some ownership and don't treat me like a woman. Yeah. So even Hattie, like in book is like getting fed up with all the Hattie bashing, which I'm really into like go her. Yeah. Yeah. And then we, I think from here we go into Buck does a computer hack, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that, yeah, this is where um, uh, we go into book doing a, uh, a computer hack i think uh we just have some like stuff about cnn for a second where it's just talking about like how uh it, the the raptures portrayed in the media and like just cnn's going crazy um uh like corpses are disappearing from morgues so like that's filling the airwaves right um because that's a very specific revelation and uh and and outside of revelation prophecy thing is that the dead in christ will rise first Mm -hmm. so the bodies of dead christians are disappearing out of their graves which is actually something i never noticed when i read this as a as a kid um we got to talk about it we got to talk about the labor and delivery room scene because oh oh, this pops up in both this series and it shows up in the kids adaptation novels this goes in the kids novels yeah dude and this is a level of and it it seems really like tame on one side but the other side it is a level of body horror that i find to be incredibly disturbing yeah because uh it even goes direct like doctors delivered the placenta like that was and it goes into like the gritty details of this woman who was was giving birth and then the baby just disappearing. That yeah, that unnerved me. And watching her stomach deflate, which is just like Yeah, that yeah, this is where it, it turns. It just man, that just got uh, weird. It, and it, it felt weird and it felt gross and it felt harrowing. And like I mean, 
if that's what you're going for, then great. But like, I did not enjoy reading that one bit. Oh no. That poor woman. (laughs) Yeah. And even it goes into the quote, did she realize in a few moments they'd be parents in about a minute, you're going to be divorced. Yeah. It's like this marriage just fell apart because of that. Yeah. It just, it, 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 it sets up and it actually reminds me of, um, uh, there's a first person level in one of the Call of Duty games where you are manning, you're a dad manning the video camera on a family vacation right before a terrorist attack. Oh my god! Oh yeah, yeah, and it's absolute just a shock moment. Like um, you're you're walking down the streets of Paris and the attack happens and the family's caught up in it, and it reminded me so much of that of this moment of just absolute inexplicable horror mixed with a very kind of normal thing that families go through, which, I mean, it really got me like it and in a good and bad way, like it got me in a way where I was like, Oh God, it's gross. Like that's awful. That sucks for these people. And I really feel for them. But at the same time, I was like, okay, like you guys are really trying to stay true to your, your fiction that you're coming up with here. Like I, I loved it and I hated it. Yeah, like they're they're dedicated to what they're doing, like they're consistent. But like how how like they the, the nitty gritty of how they stay consistent really gets like it gets into some weird territory as the book goes on. Um, but the next thing uh, that's worth mentioning is this begins. Um, uh, Rayford, as soon as he gets to a phone, he immediately starts f- uh, trying to find his uh, his family, his wife Irene, his son uh, Ray Jr., and then uh, his uh, daughter Chloe. Yes. Um, and it, he's uh, he's having trouble getting a hold of anybody uh, in his family at first. Uh, yeah. And you get that foreshadowing of Irene being a sold-out evangelical, which I think at both the audience or the reader and Ray both kind of know where this is going. Right. And uh, all right. And now we finally get into a book. Does does a computer hack, which I think is so like it's it's a nice little contrast. You know, you got Ray, the family man, who the first thing he considers doing when he gets a communication device is call his family. Uh, Buck doesn't even wait to get to the airport yeah yeah he's instantly like wanting to get this score he's got a scoop to 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 get down yeah this is buck the the stone the stone cold career man um who in a feat of 90s engineering uh that belongs in exactly this kind of airport novel uh what does he do he uses a a multi-tool to strip off the wires of an in-flight phone and then connects a modem to his laptop Right, something that like anytime Buck sees a phone, he's just ready to plug his computer into it. That's a thing he does so many times. Is <laughs> he is just ready to plug that computer into his phone despite the protests of everyone around him. Like, sir, you can't do that. Oh, you must not realize I'm the protagonist. I absolutely can. Who do you think you are? I'm Buck Williams. I edit for the glo- for Global. Yeah, and everybody goes, the Buck Williams? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, the first, his, uh, his first kind of, uh, he gets a, a memo from Steve Plank, his executive editor, who's just like, hey, don't go to New York. And then the second message is like, Buck, ignore that. You come into New York. Yeah, the, the, the message from Steve goes out to everyone at Global Weekly, do not under any circumstances come to New York. Except for you, Buck. You better get your a- over here. 
which uh, that second uh, that second uh, report gets into some kind of weird territory. Yeah, it's really wild. Um, in the midst of him uh, stripping the wires and doing his thing at the uh, on the plane, um, he's able to consistently try to send out messages, and his email is bonkers. Um, he re- repeatedly uses phrases like "my computer address," "the information superhighway," like all of the '90s Web 1.0 terms um, that are just it dates this book instantly right because uh and even uh something i picked up is he's talking about like how long it takes to send the emails to like he's like all right i'm just gonna let these send in the background so it gives a, a window into how like he's he's having to use uh, essentially dial up at times right right and so from there we end up um back to ray's perspective uh we find out doctors on board are handing out valium like it's candy which i don't know at doctors if you're listening do you guys just carry around valium because that that's crazy um they make it back to o'hare they have to turn around um because they were flying from o'hare to heathrow and then they turn around they get to o'hare we find out a little bit more about what's going on on the ground all of the car accidents and things like that people are crying um hattie brings up the point to ray that they didn't lose any children or babies um and that is another evangelical tidbit about the age of accountability um, this is something that you're taught growing up in church is that there's going to come a point where you as a child are going to hit what's called the age of accountability, which is the age where God says you're old enough to know better. So if you're not a good Christian, then that's on you, bud. And what was that like for you? Did you did you hear that growing up? Uh, yeah, yeah. I heard that. They, they, the whole age of reason kind of argument. Yeah, I, I forgot. Yeah, it's called age of reason sometimes too. Yeah, that was uh, that wasn't thrown around too much in uh, my household, which may have came from uh, the whole Baptist perspective of like, oh, like once you're in, you're in. Yeah, and I yeah, I think that's a very Baptist thing, from what I understand. The once saved, always saved. We definitely in the Assemblies of God did not believe in once saved, always saved. So there was sort of a constant, it like eternal renewal that had to take place. Like you had to continuously repent for your sins. Um, and things like that, but it's it's usually the age of accountability was around young, uh, like young adolescents, like twelve, maybe eleven, um, mm-hmm. or just creeping into teenage years. So you pretty much got the first decade as a pass. Yeah. So if the rapture happened, like boom, you're gone. That's another one of those evangelical kind of worldview things that gets shoved in here. Right, and uh, I think this. This is a good time to segue into um, our our next kind of character name drop, old Nikolai Carpathia, like the oh. Carpathian Mountains. <laughs> yeah, like the Carpathian Mountains, which is so funny. Like, I I wrote that in my notes too. Of the, it's like oh, like the Carpathian Mountains. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's another thing. Like it's Cameron Buck Williams and Nikolai Carpathia, like the Carpathian Mountains. Well, Buck is your favorite character. We have reached my favorite character of the entire series. The old Romanian lower government guy who's uh, seemingly like uh, starting to rise through the ranks of stuff. Yes, my favorite character, Nikolai Carpathia. Um, the guy I would absolutely have a beer with. The guy that I would talk politics with. Um, (laughs) I love this guy and that's, I'm sorry for those of you who know where this character is going. Um, if that's kind of telling about me, (laughs) 
but like i love this dude he's but he's awesome he, he is pretty like like talented like and uh really kind of cool because he speaks like several languages other than english he's a really um uh, just intelligent guy who um uh, is always like um speaking at the un he was time person of the year for a bit oh yeah and he's he's campaigning for nuclear disarmament he's we're finding out about this guy secondhand from Buck, who found out about him secondhand from Rosenzweig. Mm-hmm. Um, and we find out that Rosenzweig, who is not easily impressed by other people, who kind of gets wined and dined by people a lot, especially politicians, really digs this Carpathia guy. And he's a real up-and-comer. Yeah. Um, despite what we're going to hear in later chapters, that Romania is a non-strategic nation and Romania really doesn't matter, we start to learn about uh, Nikolai Carpathia. And he is going to be, spoilers, kind of what you might call a big deal later on in the story. So we learn about Carpathia. We get a little bit more of CNN, um, a lot of stuff about car accidents. And sorry, spicy take. Uh, God caused these car accidents and did not give these people a chance to repent um, like we're going to learn everyone else is getting later. So yeah, God's a dick. Um, I'm not. I'm not a fan of how he does business. That that does kind of get into like uh, the whole because I even I have kind of looked through the story through like a slightly gnostic perspective at times. Like, hey, uh, a lot of people didn't get a chance to like uh, like you said them uh, like kind of figure things out after this moment, and they were just casualties, right? And 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 that is just from the evangelical perspective. What they would probably say is something to the effect of, "Well, they had their chance." I don't want to go too far into the politics of this yet. I mean, we've gotten a little bit into it with the Israel thing and the fascination and love of Israel, which is definitely a hallmark of evangelical politics as well as spirituality. This gets into sort of the right wing very well. Well, you need to take personal responsibility um, mm-hmm. message that comes into a lot of evangelical American Christianity, which is absolutely the perspective we're seeing this from. So I'm sure that if you talk to someone who holds this belief or this worldview that this is in fact how the end times would take place, they would tell you, uh, well, they had their chance. Mm-hmm. You know, you could die tomorrow. You could die tomorrow and the rapture wouldn't happen. But at the same time, I'm just like, come on, dude. Right. And, uh, We'll kind of get a little bit into like um, that kind of thinking with uh, Rayford in this moment because he he finally at the end of chapter four gets home and um, uh, he's um, uh, he went in, he goes into Rainy uh, his uh, his son uh, Rayford Jr. I, I gotta room. I gotta cut you off right here though because we we didn't mention how he gets home he gets a super special uh, helicopter ride out of. O'Hare, which O'Hare is a madhouse, and mm-hmm. he gets to ride all the way home with Hattie on his lap. Oh yeah, oh, that that gets into the "What do you weigh, doll?" thing. Yeah, uh, that's your because that's your favorite. Space. That's your favorite line. <laughs> yeah, because there's there wasn't enough space in the helicopter, so he's just like, "Can can she ride in your lap?" Yeah, and uh, he he specifically mentions uh, there is no joy with him on his lap. I'm like, so you you have Hattie and her. Uh, like Hattie's ass riding on your lap the entire time, and and you have to specifically mention that and talk about how yeah, but I didn't get I didn't get a winner. <laughs> yeah, he's just like, well, I mean, it, 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 uh, it had to happen, but it doesn't mean I have to like it. I I specifically I specifically did not enjoy this. This was not I I I I didn't I didn't I didn't like this at all. 
which <laughs> right? I think is hilarious. Um, right. So yeah, so that, and that's when what do you weigh doll actually happens is them asking before Hattie gets on the helicopter. So we have our we've everybody touched down. Um oh oh I forgot about uh Chris, the the first officer on the flight. Um yeah. kills himself. Yeah, go go into him a little bit. Yeah, so the first officer on the flight who is uh his name is Chris Smith. Um he is not um given very much character, but as soon as they touch down at O'Hare, right before they leave, they find out that the guy found out that his whole family disappeared and uh, he kills himself. Like, just just splits his wrist. Right, and that was a thing that a lot of people did, too. Like, a lot of people just, like, they were they could not handle such kind of uh, an overwhelming event. So, like, all right, there's there's nothing left for me. Which I think is a, is pretty kind of a logical thought train that a lot of people, if this would happen, if they just kind of, like, watch their family just, like, be Thanos snapped before their eyes, essentially, they just... Right. They just, they, just, they, they, they have nothing to live for anymore. Yeah, and it's, and what sucks even more is in this, you know, when you're looking at it through their lens, suicides go to hell, go directly to hell. Mm-hmm. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200 like you're done, which is absolutely tragic. And I love that you just referred to this as Thanos snapped because for some reason, despite how into these books I was when Avengers Endgame or Avengers Infinity War came out, I did not make the connection to how close to a rapture scenario the snap was. Right. Um. Yeah, I just, it had been such a different part of my life and I just had not thought about these books in ages um, until we started kind of getting into the idea and prepping for this podcast. But you are so absolutely right. If you want to watch a good Rapture movie, uh, watch Avengers Endgame. <laughs> it's a great Rapture movie. Yeah, it's-, it's about the, the aftermath of the Rapture. It's uh, it's all about that. Oh my God. What if when, like in the future, when this is, uh, when this is updated, they throw in in-game references? I bet you $100 that they will. I will take $100 cash out of my wallet and hand it to you if they don't. (laughs) And they'll say something ham-fisted like, this is probably what Captain America felt like. Uh, Which, dude, like, and it's funny, in my notes, I have Rayford listed as Captain America and Buck listed as Bucky. Right, that 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 makes a lot of sense. Ray is the all-American boy. Oh, I was just gonna say, even have like Captain America's line. Um, uh, there's only one um, God like that. I can't remember who he says that to in which movie, but that's uh, that's very much a. Kind of uh, he says it to Maria Hill in the first Avengers when he's like, "There's only one God, ma'am." I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. Yeah, that's Rayford. <laughs> Yeah, that's Rayford 100%, which is kind of, it, he's an interesting character. Like from a from a kid who grew up evangelical, he is an interesting character because he is a guy who should have known better by their standards, but didn't, and now immediately realizes the error of his ways. And he is one of a couple of characters who have that, um, that moment. So we move on to Buck, uh, who goes to the equivalent of the Delta Sky Club and gets on and, and he strips another phone, uh, plugs himself in his computer into another right, phone. Right, with his one leather bag. Um, yep, yeah, his one leather bag, yeah, Buck's with bag his, that has uh, yeah, anything he cha- needs yeah. in it. He has two change of clothes, his laptop, his, um, his cellular phone, tape recorder accessories, toiletry, and some serious insulated weather, um, uh, winter gear. All shoved into his one leather Indiana Jones satchel. <laughs> um, his his bag of holding that he carries with him. And it goes into his uh, laundry practice too. Right, absolutely. So he gets on with Steve Plank, um, starts emailing back and forth. And this is where we get into some more weird Tim LaHaye stuff. Um, we start hearing about a Jewish nationalist conference um, who are trying to push a new world order government. And I'm going to give you some insight on my notes. 
Um, I just put a bunch of red flags, <laughs> red flag emojis <laughs> down next to them. Dude, oh it is such a, it <laughs> is, perfect. it is, if you want to look up or try to find references to the kind of conspiracy theories people believed back in the 90s, this is 100% it. And the fixation on Jews is so uncomfortable. Um, the way that they say it, there's a line that's going to come later and I'm going to read it, but it made me go, Oh boy. But yes, this fixation on Israel, fixation on Jews, um, fixation on the Middle East. This is all like part and parcel to the sort of evangelical conspiracy mindset from then. They're talking about coming to a new world religion. And we already talked about the currency thing. Um, but I, I wanted to get into that a little bit more that they're taught that they, so the world at this point has moved into three currencies, yen, Deutschmarks, and or euros, depending on which version of the book you're reading, and dollars. And they're talking about moving to one world currency. And that is such a big, like anything one world is such a big like for um, your evangelical conspiracy folks. Right. And I, an interesting thing that they do with it is like one guy's just like, you know, I'd be really okay with it just as long as it stays dollars. Yeah. And, and which is really funny. And, and like it, but it, the fact that there's such a fixation about before the rapture even happens, the wheels of a one world government are already turning. Um, like, you know, they're going to, they're going to take away our sovereignty. They're going to take away our freedom. And this is a been pre nine 11. Like, the the whole gonna take away my freedom thing happened pre nine eleven and like I mean we don't need to get into all that but like it's it is very funny like it, it just is so funny is the word that I keep kind of thinking of that, that this is what people were afraid of so we hear more about Carpathia um, they compare him to Gorbachev which is a, you know a super dated reference like you know I mean even then it wasn't super dated but I mean it definitely is now. Um, and we meet, we reach into chapter four and we find Buck and the doctor, which is another one of my favorite lines that we've done in this episode. So Buck injured himself. He hit his head coming down the emergency slide on the plane when they landed at O'Hare and he has a doctor offer to patch him up. Doctor's first question. You have AIDS or anything fun like that? Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just like, he, he kind of just brushes off like, no. Nah. And he's like, oh, but I appreciate you. you guys. So they don't really go back to, uh, don't really talk about that other than uh, in passing. But yeah, that was a weird kind of throwaway line. Yeah, dude. Like it is, they, they just says like, yeah, you don't have AIDS or anything fun like that. Um, we wrote this book in the 90s, 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 90s. <laughs> it's just so funny. <laughs> like, and dude, AIDS, you know, used to be this thing that they they inundated you with, like in your media in the '90s. Like it was this, it was this, it almost became a plot device. Like there was a Bill Nye episode about it, right? Um, and there was also a Captain Planet episode, if I recall. Yeah, there's Captain Planet an episode that, about it. Like it, it was such a, it was a thing that because I mean, for very real reasons in the '80s, it honestly didn't get the proper amount of of media attention and coverage and and proper treatment and um, you know attention and care that it deserved. Um, in the 80s, I think the 90s were a period of time where that that ship was kind of being righted. Um, mm-hmm. We get more casual misogyny. We get to hear about um, Hattie's family. Um, we learn that Hattie's family is, quote, out west. And I wrote this in my notes that this is another evangelical thing. 
Um, the West Coast is full of cranks, dummies, and atheists. Damn, li- oh, yeah, damn liberals. liberals <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's, it's just a bunch of damn liberals. And so, of course, her family from California got left behind because everyone in California is a loose, is a morally loose liberal. Um, <laughs> um, so we switch again from Buck to Ray going home. And uh, so you said, so back to where you were. Ray finally gets home. And we get several moments in several chapters of Ray drinking, walking around his empty house, and crying. Yeah, <laughs> like, he's, he's, like he went into his child's room and like is looking at uh, like a picture of himself on his bedside table that he that he signed his own like pilot's photo and even like uh, remarks like what kind of dad autographs a picture for his own son? Yeah, I don't know, Ray. Dad. What kind of dad does do some psycho? Sh- like that <laughs> that is so weird right and then uh the the chapter ends with just one of the many sad boy rayford lines and rayford cried himself to sleep yeah he curls up in bed with his wife's night clothes um yeah and cries which like okay i don't think that that's all that weird like Ed, the guy's been through an extremely traumatic event he's just lost his wife and son unprecedented knows that there's dark days ahead like i mean come on like what are you gonna do like it, I don't think that that's out of, I don't think that that's out of line. Yeah. That's a really realistic image and more of like the kind of like really just like, you know, you get to fully see how people would act in like these really like upsetting scenarios. And yeah, sometimes if you, your wife gets dematerialized out of the ass, sometimes you just gotta like curl up in a ball and cry about it. Yeah. And then, and we back, we're back to Ray, like Ray is kind of the spiritual exposition and buck is the is the the mundane exposition Mm -hmm. um he he thinks a little bit about the rapture and about faith and things like that but like you know this is that weird like dichotomy with left behind where they can write these absolutely bonkers cartoon sounding bits of dialogue like no one talks like that to these really human moments and that really sold me like man i felt like i was like dude i that broke my heart. Like it legitimately yeah. did. Like I was really saddened by that moment, like emotionally impacted. Yeah. And a lot of these, like, like uh, I've been saying a lot of these little moments where like you get to see like just the, the really human side of uh, how people react in disasters is just, it's really compelling. Like that's some of the parts of the book that I really like personally. Yeah, totally. So going on from here, we're back to Buck. And Buck giving us some more exposition about Carpathia. Mm -hmm. So we talked about Carpathia already, but I got to put in this specific line uh, of his description, which I I just want to hear your reaction. Blonde and blue-eyed, like the original Romanians who came from Rome before the Mongols affected their race. That's, um... That is some Lovecraft levels of racial description that, like, make me go, ah, yikes. Right? That's... That's getting into a little bit into the Arianism territory. Yeah, totally. Um, and so that that's the one thing that stood out about uh, Carpathia from there. You just kind of learn that he's a saint. He's a great guy. Everybody in the world seems to like him, and he's kind of an up-and-comer. So Buck finds a way to charter a flight because there's no way to get to New York on the major airlines. Um, and then we're back to Ray taking another sad boy walk through his house. Then the chapter ends. Um, yeah, the phone wakes him up. Yeah, 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 exactly. And then um, we're been to chapter five with Buck. Um, Buck starts thinking about Lucinda Washington, who is not a major character in these books, but her son, 
that we're going to meet a little bit later is, and he's actually a major character of the kids book series, Left Behind the Kids, which was a, a young adult novelization that takes place concurrently. Um, it's kind of the young, the young Avengers of, uh, of this or the new warriors of, of this Avengers team. Which I, I called it because there's this one section with just this uh, little boy who turns out to, like you said, be Lucinda w- Williams' uh, son. And it was just really out of place. Like, just this random teenager that I think calls Buck. And I'm just like, is this the tie-in for the kids one? And I, I nailed it on the head. You did, yeah. We talked about this off mic, is that he was like, hey, is this a uh, kid who is not named in the book? His name is Lionel, but he is not named in the the full Left Behind novel. Um, you're like, is this kid part of the the kids tie-in series and i was like yes actually he is um so yeah you got that one in one um so yeah lucinda washington she's a token christian black woman who uh gets on the phone with him and gives some more faith-based exposition one of the things she says is the israelis hate jesus and look what god did for them Ooh. <laughs> your silence which is ooh. Yeah, um, I, I didn't know that the Israelis hate Jesus. Thanks, book, for telling me that. I, oh, oh, wait, oh, right after that's another one of my favorite lines. Granted, but don't start calling me a Christian. Deist as much as I'll cop to. <laughs> when you do it, when you do it in the 1930s voice, it just makes it makes it so much better. <laughs> I mean, that's that's just any time I read dialogue. That's just that's my inner that's my inner monologue there. Yep, yep. So we switch from thinking about Lucinda Washington to thinking about Dirk Burton. Oh, yeah. Um, so amazing names continue. Um, so Dirk is a buddy of Buck's. He's a David Icke conspiracy theorist type of guy. So we had to write a conspiracy theorist into the story. Um, he's an insider in the finance world with um, knowledge about the New World Order and the Bilderberg Group. These are not actually named, but like the IMF, the World Bank, the Trilateral Commission, the Bilderbergs, the Illuminati, pick your secret society of choice and they just sort of mix them all into one. They say an amazing line in this dialogue, uh, this flashback dialogue between Dirk and uh, and Buck. You you thought the metric system would pave the way for communism. Where are your commies now? <laughs> yeah, they, they do kind of like uh, gloss over the whole metric system thing and, and even just like, oh, so what? We're going to make the Russians make it easier to read our maps? Yeah, it's really funny. <laughs> like just it, And it's all exposition to get us to the New World Order conspiracy, which the conspiracy theorist turns out to be right. Again, justifying Tim LaHaye's views. Um, and we get introduced to the character of Jonathan Stonegall, who I have written in my notes as, quote, not George Soros. <laughs> right? Oh, my God. Yeah, because he's just like this really rich guy who's like, uh, he's like, he's always funding stuff. Yeah, and he's always funding things in the UN, which apparently in this world, the United Nations has the power to just make countries do stuff. Um, so apparently the UN, the UN, uh, strong-armed a bunch of countries into going to three currencies, and they're about to do it to one, which shows such an amazing lack of understanding of how actual geopolitics works that it is hysterical um, to assume that the UN can make any country do anything. Right. <laughs> and I'd like to also mention, he uses the term muckety-mucks, which will come up later. 
That word gets used so much. Um, so we learn about Stonegal and how he is the power behind uh, these international money men, as they call it, that are manipulating things. It's the Illuminati. So, and and I, there's not the tinge of when they say things like money men, not to get too spicy, but there's not the tinge of anti-Semitism that you sometimes get um, when conspiracy theorists start talking about this stuff. It just sort of becomes shadowy rich guys. Yeah. Um, which is a good thing. Points for that left behind for not putting so much blatant anti-Semitism in your book. Uh, good job, guys. Yeah, good, good job. Good job. Uh, somehow, yeah, somehow that is an achievement uh, when we're talking about certain evangelical circles. <laughs> um, so we, we talk, we then cut to Ray. He talks to Hattie on the phone. Um, I actually did the math. Uh, Ray is 42. Gotcha. Um, so Ray is 42. Um, that puts Hattie at, I think 27. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's about right. Um, because I think he says 15 years uh, his junior. So that puts her at 27. Um, and then, so they have a kind of uneventful call. Ray is very sad. Yeah. Um, Buck charters his flight to New York. Um, talks about his family. Um, ends up calling Hattie, letting her know, that, you know, talking about how her families are okay. I noticed this thing. They keep worrying about tying up the phone line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which... Again, like Buck's cell phone, which is it's announced that he has a cell phone earlier in the thing that his cell phone doesn't work like ever. Yeah, yeah. The um, phones are always going out. Like they're always having trouble with the phones. That's like one of the core conflict uh things in this book is oh, phones working, phones not working, phones are working, but you gotta like hook it up, hook your computer up to it. Yeah, totally. And then we see that. Um, a point that I've been kind of um, waiting to bring up is that Buck starts throwing around thousands of dollars. Oh, yeah. Buck just has money. Yeah, and, and Ray does too. Like Ray, obviously, uh, his son has you know a four-wheeler and a snowmobile, and he has a three-car garage and a nice house in the suburbs of Chicago. And like, you know, he, they're both – the perspective of the protagonists of this book is that of someone very affluent. Mm-hmm. There is no working class – you know, uh, voice in this book. Um, everyone is very affluent. Everyone is very capable. Everyone is very successful, which I think speaks to a very specific right wing subset of evangelical Christianity, um, Mm -hmm. of, of folks who are suburbanite successful, um, which I think was their target audience. Like, I, I don't think it's a good or bad thing. I think it's neutral, but politically, I think that's very important to remember that of who this is being written for. You know, someone who is living paycheck to paycheck, uh, this book isn't necessarily written for you. Yeah, yeah. Like he's just he's just dropping uh like large checks like it's nothing. Like I know there's this one um uh like they're have they're like getting limos um uh, to travel uh to uh, get people around and it's like a hundred dollars a head and Buck just drops that like all right, let's go. Let's get in this limo for a hundred dollars. Yeah, just a hundred dollars to charter a limo, which in nineteen ninety dollars or ninety nine dollars, I don't know how much that is, but so he goes and he t- t- spends a night in a CD motel, um, which they have a really weird line where Buck asks the limo driver, "They got phones in those dives? I'd uh, be more likely to find a phone in a TV than running water." Right? Yeah, like every time. Uh, what? Like, yeah, <laughs> that's like unsanitary. Like I don't know. I, I may be wrong. I may have just not traveled enough, but I've what hotel room doesn't have running water? Right. And, and maybe you could say some hotel rooms would have like kind of like uh, water that you want to kind of put through like a kettle first. But yeah, that, that, that struck me weird. 
or maybe like hallway bathrooms, like community bathrooms, maybe mm-hmm. like maybe that's what they're talking about. But like that, I I don't know. That that just struck me as really weird. Yeah. So we cut back to Ray getting sad drunk in his house. Um, and you had a line from this one. What was it? Let's see. Just well, the, the first line of the chapter is it had been ages since Rafe and Steele had been drunk. That was the one. Yep. So he has like this weird last celebratory drink before he throws the bottle away, which by the way, guys, um, for those of you that, that didn't grow up evangelical, um, drinking bad. Yeah. Um, definitely not bad in a, you're going to hell way, but definitely bad in that, the good Christians are teetotalers. The okay Christians are drinkers. Right. And that was, uh, I didn't think it uses the word teetotaler in this section somewhere. And even like, uh, I think it does to describe Irene. I think it does. Yeah. Right. And, uh, also another funny part that like, um, uh, he, he thinks like he, for a moment he's like, Oh, why don't I just drink it straight from the bottle? like, no, I can't do that. That's not classy. I'm not that low yet. Which, as someone who is on several occasions taking a drink straight from the bottle, uh, fuck you, Ray. Yeah, and he but he kind of gets his just desserts because then he's like, "What an idiot!" He thought, and on an empty stomach too. So this guy is not um uh, not intelligently drinking. You're bad at drinking, Ray. You're bad. Uh, and, and yeah, and then, um, uh, and then he kind of starts get feeling guilty. He's just like, oh, with this respect, my wife's memory that I'm drinking alone. Yeah. And the, and let's not even to get into the weird, uh, moment where he questions his, uh, recently raptured son's sexuality. Um, cause oh, that God, 100% happens. Oh, so it's, it's coded language. So it's, it's okay. It's not right there explicit in the text, but he talks about Raimi being effeminate um, and being a mama's boy, which are all things of like, he's not enough of a man, which is code for he might be gay, Ah. which, which is not, but it's going right up to the line of obviously, because obviously this is an unfounded worry of Ray's because Raimi is not gay because if he was, he wouldn't be going to heaven. Oh, okay. Now I see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, this is a moment and, and as much as we're kind of dogging on Ray in this scene, this is the moment they kind of set him up as a non-Christian undergoing a tribulation conversion and being set up as kind of the real hero. Mm -hmm. Um, if we want to talk about literary tropes, Ray is the protagonist. He's the hero. Buck is kind of the Lancer. Yeah. Um, he's the backup. We said Captain America and Bucky. Um, Buck is Joey Wheeler. He's he's the Joey Wheeler. (laughs) He's, he is the Vegeta. He's the Joey Wheeler. He is the, uh, the Sonosuke. Uh, he's (laughs) just pick your, pick your shonen anime, which, um, if we ever get to the point where we have people listening who can animate, I would pay you money for a shonen anime opening of a left behind anime. Oh my God. Uh, I somebody would... do it in the, in the SpongeBob anime style. I would die. I would literally be like, I I'm, I'm done. I'm done. That's amazing. I, I, I need to see that. That needs to be manifested, please. <laughs> <laughs> so we have, um we have a little bit more buck stuff. Um, talking to his family, um, making a deal with the hotel manager, getting ready to charter his flight in the morning that he's going to charter a private pilot. Um, we switch back to Ray for just a minute. Um, but before we do that, we learn that the hotel manager's name is Mac, which is, Mac. again, the most right out of a noir novel. Um, yeah, name's Mac. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, Ray talks to Chloe's roommate, still can't get in touch with Chloe because we've talked about how he's really trying to kind of get on that. The the pace of the novel is kind of picking up and slowing down somehow at the same time um, because it's taking the characters, you know, on these longer journeys, but they're having to fill time. So they're talking about stuff that's going on. Yeah, where, where he it reaffirms, he buck, um, uh, buck, bucks the tradition with, uh, he's actually, um, uh, a lot of his family just kind of like stay behind and like help the family business. But no, he went on to Ivy League to pursue this, uh, this whole journalism deal. Yeah, um, weird shade thrown at like working class folks. Like, um, it's like, ah, you, you big fancy college boy. How dare you, um, go onto an Ivy league school. And, um, and, but, but they are framed as kind of rubes, like Bucks yeah, the cool yeah. guy. And I, I didn't, I was like, oh, come on, man. There's so many moments in this between going like, oh, that's fun to, oh, come on, man. Right. So Nikolai Carpathia is, becomes president of Romania, um, happens to be 33 years old which is a mm-hmm. significant age if you read the Bible because it happens to be the same age as Christ when he was crucified. Um, and then uh, also described as looking not unlike a young Robert Redford. So we're continuing to stay contemporary in our references. <laughs> right. And you know, there's a funny line at the end of chapter six where like Rayford is looking at a picture of Carpathia and there's this weird line where like, um, uh, Let's see. Wonder if he would have wanted the job that he had known um, that he had known what was about to happen. Rafer thought whatever he has to offer won't amount to a hill of beans. Now, God, a hill of beans. <laughs> hill of beans. God, it's that's Casablanca talk, man. It's so funny. Um, so Buck gets on the plane. He's talking to the pilot. Charters a a fifteen hundred dollar plane ride. Um, which for a private jet, that's actually pretty impressive, I guess. Right. Um, they talk about UFOs. Um, you learn that the rational people didn't get snatched, which is kind of fun that like the people that the, this pilot thinks that the only people who went were people who could be like Jedi mind tricked. That, yeah, that's an interesting angle. Then they get kind of like into Fermi paradox, um, uh, uh, zone where they're just like, well, space is so vast that it has to be aliens like doing all this just because of like how um uh, pretty much it's just like, hey, I um someone's like, hey, I watch Star Trek um uh, and um uh, I know it must be aliens. Yeah, totally. And then so so they have a little bit of like back and forth. Oh, and yeah, even uh, the the oh, quick little thing, even that even like argue whether or not to like bring people back to like can we like rematerialize them. Yeah, can we bring them back? Like, is this going to happen? Which is which is neat, and like we talked about that earlier, that like people would probably theory craft and speculate about this. Yeah, it's just that the way that it's written just still feels kind of stilted and unnatural. But like, you know, it's it's also kind of endearing in that way. You know, like they're a little too on the nose with how they talk. Mm-hmm. We cut back to Ray. So we've been doing this ping pong game between Ray and Buck. Ray and Buck. He's reading the Bible. He's got one of those words in words of Christ in red Bibles. Yeah, I red letter Bible. Those. I totally had one. I had a couple. And he gets to the let let the one who is thirsty come and receive the waters of life or I I can't remember the exact way the verse is said. In the evangelical tradition, Bible study, prayer lists, church attendance, all of these things are seen as value adds to salvation. Um, And it's not that you have to do those things to go to heaven. It's that if you're on the track to heaven, you're going to do those things anyway. Mm -hmm. 
which is an interesting, that's always been such a hallmark of evangelicalism that it's kind of a, that's almost, that's always such of a, an interesting hallmark of evangelicalism that it kind of assumes that you're going to behave a certain way if you've made a true commitment, um, which is something that sort of flows throughout this story. Yeah. And uh, also he's looking through Irene's um, uh, Bible for notes and she's like just writing the word precious beside ver- verses. Yeah, it's her Gollum Bible. Yeah. <laughs> my precious. <laughs> I I that's just where my head went. Yeah. Even Rayford like he's tempted like should I write precious beside this verse? And that was absolutely a thing that like like the grandmas and stuff at church did, you know, in their Bible studies and whatever. Like that's, that's, that seems silly. And I make the Gollum joke, but like, that's, that's a real thing. Like a lot of this is very true to life for evangelical Christians. I did want to mention I became evangelical because of listening to a Christian radio station. Yeah. Which is kind of a, a kind of a common story that is huge in the Bible belt that happened. Yeah, dude, there's, but, and it's, it's the kind of radio duality of right-wing talk radio and right-wing Christian radio, um, evangelical Christian radio. Like it's, it's the one, two punch of things that people are either listening to on their commute and then at work. Cause I can tell you that was definitely the Christian side of that was definitely part of my upbringing. And then for a lot of my friends, it was Mm -hmm. both. Mine too. Um, they're listening to Rush Limbaugh in the uh, afternoon on the way home, but they're listening to Adrian Rogers or someone like that in the morning, uh, listening to a sermon on the way to work and listening to Rush Limbaugh on the way back, mm-hmm. which I find so interesting. Yeah. And, uh, for, for my point of view, it was more like your co- contemporary, uh, Christian, like radio, um, uh, radio song, like songs and stuff. You're, uh, you're very like poppy kind of stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Your uh K Love and you know, stations like that mm-hmm. that are that are playing contemporary Christian music. I can't remember the one off the top of my head out of Atlanta, but being from that area, we listened to a lot. Oh oh the fish, one oh four seven was the one was the one that we had in Atlanta that was that was consistently on with the the uh the contemporary Christian hits of yesterday and today. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think this is going to segue into uh, this is where they start getting into like car and train crashes, too. Yes. Lots of car and train crashes as um, Buck starts to make his way into kind of a ruined on fire New York. And again, written before 9-11, which feels really, really weird. Yeah. And uh, Buck, like he's in a tight scenario where he doesn't have a way to um, get around. And he says, oh, God, help me. The next thing he sees is a bike with a sign on it that says, borrow this bike. Take it where you um, uh, like, leave it for someone else. No, Wait, does he say, oh, God, help me right before the bike thing? Yes. I did not catch that. Holy crap. Yeah, he summons a bike. Oh man, he does it. Yeah, he just he he prays for a bike and a bike. Wow, and because you hear stories like that growing up in church all the time of like you know, well, this missionary prayed for a bicycle and or prayed for a way to get to his next stop, and there was magically a bicycle waiting outside that no one was no one was claiming, and they said he could have. It. <laughs> Like that is, wow, man, I can't believe that just flew past me. Right. And uh, 
he, he finally gets to Global Weekly. And then probably one of Buck's, like, one of my favorite moments in this section of Buck pops up, where he's he kind of, like, he's been just going and going and going for days. And he finally, like, just sees, his like, his friends again. And he just breaks down. He like And he, for the first time, like, since all the just, like, cries and, like, realizes that, hey, you know, he, do, he doesn't need to be kind of, like, this complete strong man that, hey, he's going through stuff just like everyone else's. And he needs to take a moment to process all this, which I really, really liked. It, and it sets up the uh, the Global Weekly folks as kind of Buck's family. Yeah. Um, and that they're all very close. Um, from what I remember of this series, that is never paid off. Uh, <laughs> that is never like- touched on again. That is never paid off. He gets a new family um, in the form of all the other named characters. Um, he kind of goes off into his own thing. Um, the that this sort of is just there. Dang, um, which that sucks. sucks. That doesn't yeah, it does back. suck. But he starts talking to our boy Steve, um, who uses probably my favorite mobster line um, that is so on the nose that they have to lampshade it. Uh, starts referring to Carpathia as kind of a ruthless businessman, and says that in some of his business dealings, uh, people took dirt naps. Steve, you talk like a mobster. Like exactly. everyone else doesn't talk like a mobster in this book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so we get more about the Jewish nationalists, uh, specifically that they want that there's an ecumenical group of Jews who want to rebuild the temple, which is another prophecy thing. Um, mm-hmm. So we've got prophecy after prophecy happening, kind of shoehorned in. Um, and then probably my least favorite line that we read for this episode. Oh no, I know what it is. Get hit me. I'm being overrun by Jews. Ding! There we go. <laughs> yeah, I'm being I even, like, overrun I, by Jews. I, I just, actually stood up in my chair and went, whoa! Yeah, I had to put the book down. Like, I was taking a walk and, like, reading it, and I just kind of put the book down the ground and, like, sat there for a second. That is the king of the out-of-context lines you could read from this book and go, oh, boy. <laughs> Oh God! So yeah, we we find out Buck's gonna take a nap, and then he's gonna come back for his big meeting about what he's gonna, what story he's gonna be on next. Yeah, and they can't get a hold of Dirk Burton for some reason. Like, oh yeah, he does try to call Dirk, doesn't he? Because he and Dirk have the last time they talked was to talk about Stonegol and the international money men, but now he can't raise Dirk during all this, and he's like. There's no way he vanished. Mm-hmm. Nah, his voicemail's probably full. Gotcha. Um, so we sort of reach into chapter nine at this point, and we learn back to Sad Boy Ray. We learn that Irene was an army brat who never rebelled. Big thing with evangelicals is uh, rebellion. Big bad thing. We don't like rebellion. Yeah. He goes. He he revisits the private necking session and feels bad about that for a second. Yeah, dude, we learned that Ray's too much of an awkward loser to actually land an affair. Yeah, yeah, and he even like he's uh he even says just like he had plenty of opportunities to hire somebody, but he would never go there. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, sex workers are beneath him apparently. Yeah, which is a weird weird thing for. Um, uh, I mean. I'm standing your truth, my dude, I guess. Um, But um, then you also learn that um, Ray, even though he didn't cheat on Irene, he never really treated her well. Like he kept finding ways to avoid her and he was a real piece of shit. He he realizes that his wife was going to send him like a package with like his favorite cookies. And he's just like, oh God, what, what have I done? I've been mean to this woman. I have been mean to this perfect angelic homemaker of a woman. 
who has never done me wrong. He uh, he calls Hattie and like is really short with her. And uh, then um, Hattie kind of just calls Buck right after that. Yeah, calls Buck to tattle on him about a man he doesn't know, which is really weird. And uh, also some more Hattie bashing, some more casual misogyny. Um, basically, Hattie's this ditz and a member of a Lonely Hearts Club, and Buck doesn't want to hear any of it, um, which is also super yikes. Yeah, which kind of the, it gets into this line where like Hattie's just like, I, if if uh, I I just want someone to talk to, him. he's like, oh, don't worry, you can talk to me anytime. And then it even says Buck lied, <laughs> but Buck does not want to <laughs> talk to Hattie at all. Um, he's, he's also a he jerk. Even, he even says like after this phone call, he's just like, oh, I gotta take my home phone number off these business cards. I can't have people calling me. <laughs> yeah, he does. Um, which is super funny. And like, and one of the worst lines, maybe Hattie showed more depth and sense when she wasn't under stress. Oh, this, this senseless little girl. Oh my God. This woman is almost 30 years old and they're talking about her. Like she's a teenager. Right. And then, uh, Hattie calls Rayford back. They kind of like, he's like, Hey, I'm sorry for being, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm sorry for the last phone call not going on too long. Uh, and then it goes right into chapter nine. Now I got to, before we do chapter nine, cause I know we're about to wrap here, but um, the worst line in this chapter, except for maybe I'm being overrun by Jews is in reference to an Ozark airport where he says the words that is apparently a thing in the flight community, which I Googled it and could not find this. This is probably made up that pilots say Ozark spelled backwards is crazo. Oh, Ah, yeah, because that means it means nothing. That's nothing. Like, I get that you're trying to say, oh, that airport is crazy or it's hard to land in or whatever. But like, it's so dumb. Right. Yeah, because I haven't heard that. I haven't heard that either. But uh, that's funny. You know, boys, Ozark spelled backwards is crazy. <laughs> all right. So so moving to we're, we're not going to get all the way through chapter nine here. We're going to get to a very specific event. So Buck heads back into the office. He, uh, and then, um, and then after immediately after that, Rayford um, uh, gets home, and there's a really good moment. It's a really short, like uh, Rayford section, but he finally, after so much time worrying about Chloe, they finally reunite and share a very tender moment. Yep, another one of those really human moments um, with Ray that I'm I'm a real big fan of. But uh, so Buck gets back in and gets his assignments uh, for the next a couple of weeks, what he's going to be covering. Um, we get a reiteration of all of Tim LaHaye's conspiracy stuff from the currency stuff to the religious one world religion stuff to the Jewish nationalist stuff, the one world government stuff, just to continue to nail this in your heads. I think we've heard this stuff three or four times now, really, really hammering it home. And then Buck decides he's going to make one more attempt to call Dirk Burton, mm-hmm. his inside man inside the international monetary scene and uh, what happens, Gav? Well, he he immediately gets uh, Buck does not answer. It's this guy named if I'm not um, uh, I, don't, I can't find his last name, but it's Nigel. And he's uh, he's like, hey, uh, I gotta let you know this phone call is gonna be off the record. Don't talk about anything you hear in this. Strictly confidential. Strictly off the record because uh, well, because uh, Dirk's dead. Ah, Dirk's dead. He's dead. 
right? Oh, no, he got he got suicided. He's he's very suicided. He shot himself in the head. Quote quote quote. Yeah, and they're trying to they're trying to get more de- details about that because it's um uh, it's obvious that um uh, that's not the the most plausible story here. Yep. So that's where we're going to leave off this week is uh, a very shocked Buck, a very dead Dirk, and a slightly less sad Ray. Um, as the world is reeling from the consequences of the rapture of the church. Uh, and that's going to bring us to the end of our episode one of I Survived the Rapture, a Left Behind podcast. So um, thank you guys for joining us. This has been great. I have been Shane Bazell along with... Gavin Russell, thank you for tuning in and see you next time in this tribulation. And... Uh, don't stay in a hotel with no running water. That's really great. Bye. Bye. Okay, that's our show. Please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And uh, join the community on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Rapture Podcasts. Uh, you can email us at RapturePod at gmail.com, and we really want to hear from you. Thanks for listening. And lead you astray